uh, every December over the last several decades, uh, Jody and I will uh, have some variation of the same conversation. At some point, uh, as it moves toward Christmas Day, uh, we will take a look at the gifts we've purchased for our kids, and one of us will say, you know, are we even? In other words, have we spent about the same amount on both of our children. Does Alex have more this year or does Margot have this more this year? And then I'll usually say, well, maybe we can take one back or maybe we need to add one. Or my creative option is maybe we can hold one back for their birthday. So Alex's birthday is in January. That works out fine. Margot's birthday is not until August. So a winter sweater in August doesn't quite work for her. But you get the point. As parents who love our children as, as equally as humanly possible, we don't want the appearance of getting one more than the other. We want things to be even. And since I've uh, told you a little bit about my mother, my mother was so adamant about this with her four children, and I'm not kidding you. One year, I received $17 in my stocking. And so it must have been that uh, my gifts totaled $17 less than all the other kids. My mom was very serious about treating us all equally. Well, this morning, we continue our series based on the book of James. This series is called Faith in Action. And what what an incredible topic for us today to consider in how we put our faith to work and how we consider the behavior of our lives as they reflect what's going on in our heart. And that is James issues a very strong warning against the practice, if you will, of favoritism. So James chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 13. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, reads like this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do commit adultery but do commit murder, or do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. For the people of God. What I want us to look at is I just want to simply look at the folly of favoritism and I want to look at the cure. Before we dig in though, let me say a word about the word poor. Today the term poor can be considered demeaning. To label a group of people 
as poor can carry a far broader connotation than simply material poor. And I want you to know that I am very sensitive to this. When the Bible uses the term, it uses it to describe someone's economic status, and it actually uses it to champion this group of people who are often oppressed by others. So when I use the term, I only mean it in the way that the Bible does, people who are materially poor. Second, some scholars suggest that by the, this time that James was written, that poor also meant those who were poor in spirit, in the same way that Jesus used the term in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In other words, those who only put their trust in God, regardless of what their net, net worth is. There are those who consider themselves poor in spirit, and they only trust God instead of their material possessions. Now, while I, I, I agree with this interpretation in general, we cannot lose, the, lose sight of what James is really addressing here, and that is the people in the church, okay, believers, okay, the people in the church were fawning over the wealthy, and they were treating the poor poorly. So let's look at the folly of favoritism. In the Roman Empire, there was this massively uh, many, many different layers of, of social classes. I won't go into all of the details now, so let me just summarize it. There were people who were born into high social standing. And then there were people who earned their way into high social standing, those who were wealthy. And then there were some who gained high social standing because of like a military achievement or a hero of some other kind. But social classes were so rigid in the Roman Empire. They were so rigid, they made the royal family or Downton Abbey look like an egalitarian commune. There was absolutely no middle class. And the upper class made up far less than 10% of the total population. There was almost no social mobility whatsoever. There were no rags-to-riches stories. It was really hard for someone who was born into poverty, material poverty, it was really hard for them to move beyond that station. So in everyday life, of course, the poor who depended on the gener generosity and the employment of the upper classes, they bent over backwards in everyday life to show honor to those who were wealthy. Now, if you're interested in reading this in more detail, I commend David Nystrom's work to you, and I've listed uh, the title there in your resources. Now, the folly of favoritism, there are layers to this problem. And on one level, the problem we see already is that the church was imitating culture and showing favoritism to the upper classes. Just as they would out on the streets or just as they would in the marketplace, they were doing the same thing when they would come into the assembly together. They were ushering those who were wealthy up to the best seats in the house, and those who were poor, they were uh, relegating them to lesser places. James gives a vivid description here by way of example. He says, suppose someone comes in, they're wearing really nice clothes, and they have a really beautiful gold ring, and you show them to the best seat in the house, but someone comes in wearing shabby clothes, you tell them to sit at your feet. James says this is nothing short of evil. 
To do this, he said, is nothing short of evil thinking. Sorting people out by external appearances and other trappings grieves the heart of God. And it diminishes the power and the witness of the church. The Christian community is supposed to be a movement that liberates people from the big sword. The big sword is where you take people and sort them out by their station in life. And here the church that James is addressing, they were treating the poor just as they were being treated in culture. Let me camp out here for a moment. Because James is getting at something that is, that is, that is underneath not only the action of favoritism, but he's getting to the idea of cultural accommodation. There are many aspects of culture that God uses. We have electricity powering the lighting, and I assume it's heating today or cooling. I'm not sure which one it is. But we have those powering that, and that's, good. that's a good aspect of culture. We're glad we have that. We're glad we're not sitting in the room simply by uh, lamps that are uh, with candles in them. We are webcasting our service. There are many folks online this morning listening uh, to this service, and we're glad about that. That's a, a cultural aspect that is good. But then there are habits, and there are attitudes, and there are values of our culture that the church has taken on that are not only not biblical, but they're actually counter-biblical. They pull us away from the heart of God. They pull us away from what God desires. Let me just give you a, a, a tame one, if you will. Since we're on this idea of James's example of, of how people dress when they go to church. You've probably heard the phrase before, wear your best to church. Matter of fact, you may have heard it said, wear your Sunday best to church. Anybody ever hear the phrase Sunday best? The idea here is if you're going to church to worship God, you should put on your finest clothes, like the example that James gives here. Now, it's somewhat antiquated, but there's some who've taken this very seriously throughout the years. I wonder, for example, how many family fights started over trying to dress a seven-year-old in a suit or a dress. Or I wonder how many people passed on an invitation to go to church because they didn't have dress clothes to wear. Or I wonder how many people without nice clothes pushed through and went to church only to feel judged and made to feel less than equal and loved when they got there. Or I wonder how many people felt smug in their finest suits and dresses and missed the sermon on humility. There is nothing in Scripture that says, wear your Sunday best to church. Nothing. It was a cultural practice that started in the Victorian era in the first part of the 19th century when a middle class began to slowly emerge. Before then, it was like Rome. There were rich people and poor people, and that was it. And in the Middle Ages, only wealthy people had fine clothes, and poor people had two sets of drab, rough work clothes, one for working in the fields and the other that was clean. That was it. But the church bought into this cultural value. 
what the Bible does tell us about dress in the, and when you go to church is to dress modestly. What the Bible does tell us about external appearances is that God does not look upon the externals, but God looks on the heart. God does not evaluate our lives by what's on the outside. God evaluates our lives on the inside. The church of Jesus Christ is intended to be a counter-cultural movement where there is no favoritism based on money, appearance, education, personality, gifts, age, gender, you name it. The problem is that they were not just sorting people out by appearances, is they were swimming in the river of cultural accommodation. And it was taking them away from the heart of God, and it was causing them to be evil. But wait, the problem gets even more perplexing. I promise we're going to get to the solution, and we're going to get flowers at the end of the service. We're going to get to the good news. Just hang with me. According to James and his example, and most scholars believe it is safe to assume he's providing an example of behavior that was actually happening, they were showing honor to the wealthy, and it was the wealthy who exploited them and was even persecuting them. Let me say that again. They were showing honor to the wealthy, and yet it was the wealthy who were treating them like dirt, not just in church, but everywhere. They're exploiting them uh, legally and persecuting them. Fast forward over to chapter 5, and here James gets to the point here. He says this, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. James cuts right to the point there, doesn't he? He levels three charges against the wealthy. They were oppressing the poor. They were taking them to court and persecuting them legally and they were blasphemous. They were using God and the church as a means to their privileged end. The system was stacked against the poor in every way, and now they come into the church, and the church was stacked against them. Let that sink in for a moment. The oppressive system outside the church was being imitated inside the church, and the oppressors were being favored. God help us. I heard a colleague once comment on that passage in Scripture where Jesus went through the temple and he turned over the tables because the, the, the money changers were not only changing money and, and doing all that, but they were oppressing the poor with what they were selling, what they were doing. And Jesus ripped through the temple and turned over all the tables. And I heard a colleague once say, Lord, please do not let me be sitting at a table that you would turn over today. N.T. Wright wrote, In every society, unless it takes scrupulous care 
The rich can operate the justice system to their own advantage. They can hire the best lawyers. They can perhaps even bribe the judges. They can get their way, and the poor just have to put up with it. We know there are many ways the system is unfair to the poor. When we lived in Richmond, there always seemed to be a battle. Always seemed to be a battle about how far the the buses could go out from the center city into the suburbs. And people who lived in the affluent, wealthy suburbs made sure the bus line stopped before they got there. And what would happen in Richmond is often some of the, the good service industry jobs were beyond the bus line. And so if you lived in the center city and you didn't have a car and you needed to get to where there was a good job, you had to take public transportation, and then I know a fellow who had to walk then two miles farther than where the bus would go. And they would have hearings and hearings and hearings on where to stop the bus line. That's the system oppressing the poor. Or in almost every area of the country, both urban and rural, you can find pockets of the population who live in what is called a food desert. Food deserts are those places that, where it's hard to find affordable, fresh food. Major grocery chains won't operate in those areas because they can't sustain their business. Yet you have poor people living in those areas who can't get fresh, healthy food. And so they have to use public transportation to do that. And if they can't do that, then they eat cheap food that is unhealthy and then try to figure out a health care system that's stacked against them. That's the system oppressing the poor. And you could list many other examples. I know you could. So the problem was favoritism and cultural accommodation, treating the poor poorly as less than, oppressing them and honoring their oppressors. That is not the way God intends his people to be. It was a problem then. It's a problem today. It's a gentle question. Do you struggle with favoritism? Are you quick to sort people out by their appearance or other external characteristics? Just let that question hang there. All right, let's get to the cure. Let's get to the good news. If your mom was trying to teach you how not to play favorites, how to see everyone as equal in the eyes of the Lord, my guess is she would consider some variation of James's advice here. For the cure, we can underline three words or highlight three words in your your Bible. The first one is glorious. It's easy to run by that word and forget what it means as you read the rest of the passage. James opens the entire conversation reminding his readers of the glory of Jesus. I want you to think for a moment about your finest clothes. I want you to think for a moment about the most expensive suit or dress or whatever you have hanging in your closet, or maybe the most expensive suit or dress that you ever heard of, okay? I'm going to help you out here. Uh, Pastor Brian likes to play The Price is Right. So I want Pastor Brian just to guess the price of, 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 of this suit here. Will you put that one on the... Okay. This is uh, a Stuart Hughes Diamond Edition. Now, our folks know I am not a, a fashion guy, and, and, and 
you know, I don't know if you are or not, but Pastor Brian, Price is Right, how much would you think that this Stewart's Edition, Diamond Edition suit cost? All of those are diamonds? All those dots? I didn't sew them on there. I don't know. But let's assume they are. Uh, $4,782. Okay, the price is right. So <laughs> Pastor Brian said 4000 what? 782 Okay, you weren't that far off. $778,000. Okay. Okay? Yeah. All right, let's, let's do another one, Pastor Brian. Um, the most expensive dress, the Nightingale of Kuala Lumpur. $1.1 million. $1.1 million. How many of you think he's over? Lower. How many of you think he's under? $30 million. Wow. Yeah. I, who does that? <laughs> think about that for a moment. A $778,000 suit, a $30 million dress. rags compared to the glory of Jesus. Don't go by that word too fast. Our glorious Jesus. The glory of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing compares to His glory, His splendor, His goodness, his magnificent. It makes anything that we could make, and we can make some beautiful things. It makes anything that we can make pale in comparison. It is Jesus in all of his glory and splendor. It is Jesus in all of his glory and splendor that deserves the best seat in the house and the best seat in our heart. We usher Jesus to the front of our hearts and our minds. The old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And this is the verse. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. So a $30 million dress will grow strangely dim. Box seats at a Nats game, preaching to the choir now, will go strangely dim. And his glory, in the light of his glory and grace. Look upon the glory of Jesus and you will not look upon anything on this earth in the same way. When our hearts are fully aligned with Jesus, nothing compares to Him. And this helps us not to give our heart away to the shiny objects of this world or to the people who own them. By the way, James issues this warning to people who've already given their lives to Jesus. However, we need to know the first step of the cure is giving your heart to Jesus and recognizing not only his glory, but his salvation mercy. And then there's a, another word in there that it would be really easy just to, to go right by real fast, and it's royal. So we have glorious Jesus, and then we have royal law. James writes, he who keeps the royal law found in Scripture. Jesus is not only glorious, but he's a glorious king. And the law of his kingdom, the law that should pervade the church, is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
The point James is making in this teaching is not about favoritism. In this teaching about favoritism, it's not about how to treat the wealthy with disrespect. No. If you want to treat the wealthy with honor, nothing wrong with that. Just make sure you treat the poor with the same honor or even greater honor, I would say. This is the law of his kingdom. And regardless of our status here in the eyes of the world, we are all subjects in his kingdom. We're all subjects, every one of us. No matter what our station is in the world's eyes, we're all subjects to the great king. This is not Christmas, but at Christmas we can all expect to hear Handel's Messiah. The music is set to biblical texts comprising over 81 verses from 14 different books. Isaiah is the one quoted most often, and there's the famous passage from 9:64, unto us a child is born, a son is given. You know how it goes. Handel himself said when he wrote it, he said it's like he could see heaven open and he could see the face of God. Tradition says that in 1743, King George of Great Britain was so moved that when the chorus played and when the chorus sang King of Kings and Lord of Lords, King George stood in honor of Jesus. The most powerful man in the world stood in honor of Jesus when he heard the words King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whether it's true or not, it has become tradition. It's a beautiful reminder that in light of Jesus, we all owe him honor. He is the king and we are his subjects, which means in the eyes of God, we're all equal. And therefore, all should be equal in our eyes. So we have the splendor, the glory of Jesus. We have the royalty of King Jesus reminding us that we're all equal at the foot of the cross. And then there's mercy. Last word here, mercy. Mercy, James writes, triumphs over judgment. And just as we have received mercy from Jesus, we should look upon those who are materially poor with great, great mercy. And let me say, mercy should move us to action. Jesus is our glorious King, and He commands us over and over and over to show mercy to those who are materially poor. So a gentle question this morning. How's your mercy meter? What are you doing to show mercy to the poor? Well, this is a most powerful and practical word from James here. It is a word that needs to settle in us. It needs to swirl around and challenge the way we treat those who are materially poor. It is a word of wisdom that I think every mother would share with her children. It is a word of wisdom that we must heed today. May God help us, as James writes, to be doers and not hearers of the word only. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we humbly bow before you and we receive this word.
from your servant, James, today. Lord, I I just want to say, hear our prayers of confession. When we have participated in the big sort, when we have looked at people and external appearances and we've started to sort them and put them in categories, hear our prayers of confession to you this morning. Lord, you call those thoughts evil. So we confess these sins to you today. Lord, thank you for showing us mercy. Thank you for giving us a new heart. Thank you for giving us new eyes through which we can see the world and we can see others the way you see them. And so God, just as we have prayed and asked for forgiveness, we also pray and we ask for strength and faith and grace to see everybody in this world the way you do. Lord, I pray that you would give us all that we need through your Holy Spirit to move beyond sorting and looking at people as your children made in your image that you deeply love and for whom Jesus died. Lord, help us as a congregation called by your name. Help us as a congregation to stand with the poor, to work for the poor, to help the poor. Convict us and move us to action. Help our mercy not to be just words, but action. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for seeing us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your spirit that animates the good work we do. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.